This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com slash energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Sam Schiller, co-founder and CEO of Carbon Yield. Many of us may recognize that farmers somewhere help supply our food. What we may not recognize as we live disconnected from the farm is the work and energy and nutrient inputs that it takes to make food and make farms work. So I'm having Sam on the show today to talk about regenerative agriculture, how that is going to change our food supply industry, how that is going to help us decarbonize. And and it's fun because we're recording this right now. It should go out the week of Thanksgiving. So what better timing to talk about farming and food than the week when we should all be thankful for abundant food that we can overeat. So, Sam, thank you for joining me on the show today. That That sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Amen. So if you would, please share with me your background and a quick introduction to Carbon Yield. Sure. Um, And thanks so much for having me. And uh, it's really fun to get to reconnect. Um, uh, After many years, Joe and I were in an environmental fellowship many years ago um, and had the chance to think about uh, what our careers might look like. Uh, And uh, here we are uh, fighting the good fight and uh, really love your podcast and love the opportunity to share some of our work. Um, Again, I'm Sam Schuller. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Carbon Yield. Um, I have a a deep background in environmental markets. Um, uh, Started off doing some wind energy development, renewable energy development um, in the Midwest. Um, Moved on to some carbon offset work um, where we participated in Chicago Climate Exchange as well as California's cap and trade program. Um, But did a lot of work in rural communities to reduce. Um, We reduced emissions from abandoned coal mines. We reduced emissions from old refrigerants. Um, We're trying to find ways to efficiently decarbonize, but also hopefully put some value back in the pockets of um, of folks that, um, you know, were either in control of assets that could be decarbonized or, um, you know, may not have even (laughs) known that they were being part of an environmental story, Um, but really like the process of collaborating uh, with communities and and creating that kind of value. and uh, really, Carbon Yield was um, an, an extension of some of that work and, and really an opportunity to work on what I think is the, one of the most fundamental and important climate solutions, agriculture. Uh, regenerative agriculture can um, help store a quarter to a half of uh, annual global emissions um, uh, if we are able to, to do this at scale. Um, it is a process that both makes farming uh, less input intensive, so uh, it's less costly to farm, but also can uh, allow you to um, to produce premium products and uh, other environmental assets that have some value. Um, and, you know, farmers are really pinched right now in terms of uh, the, the cost of farming and uh, the challenges of handling degraded soil. Um, and regenerative agriculture is a way to restore that soil to, to be more land and to also uh, address uh, important climate issues. So um, we really help farmers navigate what it takes to transition because it can be formidable and feel challenging uh, to do that alone. And so finding the resources that they need, um, the technical expertise and and navigating some of the new markets, whether they're 
offset markets or inset markets working within corporate supply chains um, or, or just trying to find efficiencies on the farm and uh, or find new markets for their for their grains. Uh, so we've been at it for about five years now. We're based uh, in Chicago, kind of the hub of the agricultural economy, uh, spinning out into the Great Plains in the Midwest. Um, yeah, and and uh, we're really excited to, to be able to share a little bit more of our work. Yeah, that is a great story. And I always, I, I, I like to talk about, at least for the energy industry, one of those things that you need is, is a diverse multiple of income streams, a way to build multiple revenues so that your company is prepared for whatever, whatever the future may hold. And I think this, this relationship that you found talking to farmers, being able to increase their yields while also storing all of this carbon, that being a potential second revenue stream and, and, how you could build this opportunity with multiple benefits. I think that is so exciting to think about and see that it's, it's not just energy. It is, it is going to be across the board. We all need to be thinking in a, in a diverse landscape of what we need to be doing on multiple fronts in order to have a, a sustainable, abundant life in the future. Now, before we get into those benefits, specifically talking about regenerative agriculture and, and the farming aspect, I want to make sure we all have a, a, a standard baseline because we haven't talked about regenerative agriculture maybe ever on the show. So what exactly is it when we say that? What does that mean? And and how does that relate to the the current practice of of industrial agriculture? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the, the current practice of, in, of industrial agriculture, we, we kind of take nature out of the equation, created a chemistry lab in the field where we've said, hey, you need these three basic nutrients and we're going to synthetically create them uh, using a lot of natural gas, and a lot of external inputs, and um, we're going to produce food in this way that kind of ignores all of the microbes and all of the nutrients that might already be in the soil and all of the kind of reciprocal processes that you can, um, you can activate uh, and, and that we have activated for centuries. Um, this is uh, how we learn to cultivate the land and produce food. Um, and, you know, regenerative agriculture is, is a way of going back to those more collaborative methods, understanding that there's a lot of uh, stuff that we don't need that we take from from agriculture that we can kind of put back to the soil and it gets better. And the earth kind of thanks us in, in the spirit of Thanksgiving. You know, uh, it, uh, there's a lot of really mutually beneficial trading and it's not a, um, you know, sacrifice of yield or, you know, if you're putting your crop residues that you strip off from the crops um, when you harvest them or when an animal deposits manure on the ground, um, you know, you're really uh, valuing the kind of nutrients that you can add back to the system um, and not disturbing the processes that are on the ground. So looking at um, uh, things like tillage, um, when you, you, you know, put an instrument in the ground and rip it up, um, to, you know, turn over the soil and kind of, uh, prepare for the next planting. Um, when you, when you do that, you rip up some of the root systems and, um, some of the, you know, the, the, uh, mushroom and micro, micro horsei, uh, I'm saying that wrong, a mycorrhizal, uh, fungi that are able to help kind of uh, uh, facilitate these nutrient trades uh, in the soil. Um, uh, so we, in, in regenerative agriculture, we're trying to reduce that disturbance. We're trying to um, add back natural organic uh, nutrients back to the soil. Um, and we're looking to do things in a, a slightly less predictable way that pests kind of latch on to if you just go corn and soy, and corn and soy, or sometimes corn and corn and corn, that... Um, it's a. It's not a very resilient system. Um, it it um, it's really prone to pests and to um, uh, you know invasive species and things like that that pr- uh, pr- cause a farmer to need to use pesticides and herbicides and lots of other kinds of expensive inputs. Um, and so, regenerative agriculture says, hey, if you do things a little bit differently and create a slightly more diverse system, it's going to be a much more resilient system. That's not going to need that kind of um, in- intensive pest management. 
Um, so it, it's really about maintaining ground cover, collaborating with nature, and, and the idea of, be, uh, of calling it regenerative agriculture instead of uh, sustainable agriculture is that we're not trying to just sustain and tread water in the same system that is dead and broken. We are trying to actually add back and, and bring more value, leave a legacy um, that Im- improves the land from where it was when, when you started. Um, and I think that's the real exciting thing in, in agriculture is um, you have this opportunity not just to reduce emissions, um, but to, to, to reverse. I mean, um, more than uh, a third of the emissions that are in the atmosphere right now swirling above us originated in agricultural lands. Um, and we think of this as a tailpipe problem and, uh, and a smokestack problem, and it is. But, um, but, you know, until I think 1970, agriculture was by far the biggest uh, contributor of climate change and of, of greenhouse gases. Um, and we have a chance to put that right back in the soil and, and not to worry about carbon as this, um, you know, source of, of damage, but valuing it as this, as life, as roots, as um, living microbes, as uh, the stuff that we get to collaborate um, with to, to, to create healthy food. Um, so that's the hope with regener- regenerative agriculture is to re- that kind of system. I really like that point that you made right there, maybe in passing, the, the fact that carbon is life because it, it is such an important component to the, the agriculture system. And it, it is something that you hear in the industry, energy industry, because ultimately that carbon is what is producing all of this electricity and all of the energy we use to make modern life possible. And it's, it is the same stuff that is also growing the food that we eat. So it's, a it's, it's, it's hard to think about. It's almost like this trade-off of do we produce, do we produce these synthetic fertilizers and big heavy machinery that can farm all of this land? Or do we put that back in the ground and we keep it there and we let the plants do what they are naturally supposed to do? It's, and and like in my head, that's kind of this question. And and I want to say, what is, where's the data? What does it show? And so like from the conceptual standpoint, I see all the points you're making. They sound really good. They sound like it, it is a almost one for one, like let's, Let's stop putting it in the atmosphere. Let's stop. Let's stop recreating the natural system. Let's let the natural system do what it is supposed to do. Um, but I guess the question there is: Is there are there hard evidence? Is there like what kind of difference does this really make? And I'll stop there. Sure. I mean, I think there's a couple different ways to think about about difference. You know, I think um, the difference, you know, for our customers that we're really focused on making first is a, is a financial difference, you know, um, and we, um, you know, understand that most farmers are losing money. The median farmer in the U.S. this past year, I think, lost $70 uh, an acre. Um, so a, a lot of farming is supplemented by off-farm income and farmers are, are, having, are really struggling right now to make ends meet. And so we, we want farmers to, um, to succeed on the land and be able to make their living on the land. Um, and we've done extensive uh, polling. We, we did a, a collaborative project with graduate students at University of Michigan and try to figure out like what, what is a, an amount of revenue or new value that you can create for a farmer that makes doing some of these practices attractive. Um, and so we, we got, if, hey, if you can add another $50 per acre of net value to my farm, um, then you've got my attention, you know? Um, and we've been able to, through uh, saving on fertilizer applications, you know, um, fertilizer is incredibly expensive. I think it was about three times as expensive today as it was a year and a half ago. Um, so if you can save on fertilizer inputs, that's huge. Um, if you can sell your crop at a, at a premium for being regenerative, um, that's a, or add a new crop, like a, a cover crop that you might be able to harvest or an auxiliary crop that you can uh, harvest at a, at a profit, um, that adds some value. And certainly uh, th- these new carbon programs that we're working on, um, we, we think can add another $15, $20, an acre to these practices. And so um, we look at it as a, a little bit of a, a pancake uh, model where we're not just... Um, 
uh, serving the steak, but uh, there are a few different value streams that you can layer up and, and get to something meaningful. Um, but it's the same basic activities that get you there. And, and um, we're trying to simplify that process, simplify sort of the access points for a farmer. And then it, you sort of come for that that value, but you stay for the soil health benefits. And those those are really clear and, and real. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of evidence that um, regenerative farms are more drought resilient um, and, and more flood resilient that it turns out that all of those microbes and root systems really know what to do with an influx of water um, and can also retain moisture for longer. Um, and so um, you, you, you certainly have this, this benefit of uh, insulating yourself against extreme weather. Um, you also are minimizing some of the yield instability across a field or across seasons um, that a, a lot of farmers sort of look at an indicator of like, what's your top end yield? Um, and it may be that, um, uh, you know, if you're dousing your, your farms in a lot of fertilizer in one spot or a couple spots in the field, you might be able to max out uh, your, your yield at a level that a regenerative farm might struggle to hit. But um, what is it doing in the rest of the places? What is it doing in the, in the more marginal areas? Um, uh, trying to, to, to understand the total value on the farm, not just um, little specks of indicators that don't tell you if you're profitable. Um, th- those are the kinds of things that regenerative agriculture can, can work on. Um, the question of like, where are you seeing um, environmental benefits on the farm from these practices? Um, there is some uncertainty around exactly how much uh, carbon per acre you might be sequestering. Um, there's there's a, a lot of really strong evidence that if you're reducing fertilizer applications, you're reducing a lot of fertilizer emissions of N2O emissions. And again, N2O is a huge multiplier effect in the um, uh, the atmosphere, uh, high global warming potential. And so those kinds of reductions make a, a big difference. Um, and so you have this kind of decarbonizing benefit on the uh, fertilizer input side, and then you have some response in terms of soil carbon, soil organic carbon. Again, it, it can be impermanent. Um, uh, you know, if you if you till up everything after five years of doing this, um, you're not going to get all of those benefits. Um, it, you know, uh, and and biological systems are uh, are, are challenging. You know, uh, natural systems are challenging, and so I, I don't want to uh, step aside from those kind of challenges. But if you're in the right area, if you commit to these practices for a long period of time you can see a steady accrual of, of uh, carbon benefits. So a, a quarter to a half a ton per acre per year um, is, is possible with a lot of the farms that we've modeled and monitored over time. Um, so, so that combined with some of the fertilizer reduction, sometimes, hey, if you're not tilling up your field every year, um, uh, you, you have fewer tractor passes to, to come by with the combine. Um, so that can save you on diesel costs. It can save you um, c- certainly on... Um, uh, uh, yeah, on the emissions associated with those diesel passes and um, it makes a, a big difference too for your soil health. So there, there are these kind of compound benefits that you can get um, that, you know, really well established in the literature. Um, yeah. I, I do think that the, the challenge with regenerative agriculture is it, it, it is a diverse set of practices, you know, and so if you're just doing an A-B test and testing one practice in isolation and saying, hey, I did my, my uh, no-till um, and I still did everything else the same, um, you might not see a whole lot of benefit from that. Um, you, uh, you know, this is not about a reductionist like, hey, you, you just do one thing and you're set. Uh, it is kind of a continuous improvement practice and you see synergies between these practices. And so, um, you know, if, you, if you're looking for the evidence on it and you're looking for one article that says, hey, if you add a cover crop, are you, you know, changing the world? It, it's it's not that. Um, but it does get a lot easier. The more you do these practices, they, they get operationally easier to, to reinforce each other and they make that that greater impact per acre and um, create that kind of allow you to realize the kind of financial opportunities uh, on the farm. Yeah. So, so far, we've been focused on a on a per acre number. I think that's that's important so that way we can can talk about it. As far as as the size of this, you you pointed out earlier 19 since 19 or prior to 1970, agriculture was was the biggest emitter. Now, how does that compare? And like from a from a land perspective, how much land is physically farmland where this practice could actually be occurring and actually be making this difference. 
Right. So about a third of our um, land is devoted to agriculture in some way or another. Um, and, you know, uh, there, there's a continued pressure on natural lands uh, to convert over to grasslands and grazing lands and agricultural lands. So that, that, that number continues to increase over time. Also, um, you know, land is being moved over for residential development. So land transformation in general um, has this huge uh, greenhouse gas impact that we don't think a lot about and is, is really a, a meaningful, important piece. Um, so about a third of the land um, is, is in agriculture um, and our population is increasing. <laughs> so it creates another stress. Um, about 31% of emissions are associated with agriculture in some way. And so some of those are fossil fuel emissions because you're driving a tractor. Um, some of them are the fossil fuel emissions of pr producing the, uh, the fertilizer that ends up on a farm. So it's not all the scope one kind of direct impacts in the farm gate, um, but about 31% is, is associated with that full chain of producing food. Um, and it's one of the few sectors that is not really decarbonizing quickly, um, that the energy sector is making some improvements. Uh, m most of the industrial sectors have been able to make improvements. Agriculture um, is a net emitter and its, in, um, its impact is still increasing. Um, it wasn't that all of a sudden in 1970, we got a lot better in agriculture uh, and, and sustainable practices. We're able to reduce our emissions, just that the, the pie got a lot bigger and some of those other sources yeah. uh, got a little bit more dramatic. Um, so, we, you know, we've got a lot of work to do, but, uh, but again, it is, it is this two-sided coin where, um, it, you're both a source of emissions and a source of potential, um, you know, not just getting to zero, but potentially getting below zero, uh, if you do it right. And, and, you know, we're not going to stop producing food anytime soon. We have to continue to, to feed ourselves. And so if we can do that in a way that also creates these benefits, that's not about just, um, you know, conserving land, which is also very important, um, but doesn't address some of those human challenges of, of feeding our communities. But if we if we can feed our communities in a more collaborative way with nature um, and, and make progress on our climate goals at the same time, uh, it, it makes it a really important core decarbonization strategy. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense and, and definitely is all the points you're making there. We're going to keep producing food. So we need to find a way to decarbonize food production. Now, one of the things and, and one of the common rebuttals is that regenerative agriculture produces less food. And you pointed out earlier with with synthetic fertilizers, you may be able to show that this one acre is producing more, but really it is kind of across the board. It's not a per acre there. It is a what is the actual farm doing? So two-part question here. One, does regenerative agriculture, does regen agriculture produce less food on a on an annual basis? And if so, how does that how does that impact things like food supply, especially if we convert all of that land to regen agriculture? How does that impact the I guess the the financial aspects, which is kind of what we've been talking about the whole time, but just to make sure people hear it. And I think this is a hotly contested topic, and I have a really strong opinion on it, as you, you might imagine. Um, but I, I, from the evidence I've seen, I do not see that regenerative agriculture is, is somehow a, a big loser for our food security um, and, and for food production. That again, you might have top end yields on a, a farm that um, uh, that that look really good for just one corn crop, um, but if that corn crop is going to fail the next year because it can't survive the drought, um, that that you know, like if you're looking at some of the catastrophic downside scenarios, which are on on the table in many regions, I, I think on every continent besides Antarctica, we've had these kind of disruptions, um, that being able to, to produce during these really challenging times is sometimes more important than topping out uh, in, in the boom times. Uh, if, if everyone's doing fine, then everyone's going to do fine. But if we're all struggling, we still kind of need to produce food. So that's, that's one. Um, the second point is that 
by producing more different kinds of food, you um, are, are able to produce a, a density of, of product per acre that's different than just producing a lot of corn or a lot of soy. That if you're um, producing another cover crop during the off season that you're grazing livestock on, that's corn that they don't have to eat um, during the regular season, you know, Um that uh, the, the, the density of, of food per acre, the tonnage that you're able to create um, can be higher, even if one particular crop you might have to make a trade-off on, or you're you know, doing a more uh, diverse rotation where you're taking five crops in and out, you know, um, that, that ultimately that is going to, um, it, it's going to redistribute what we're eating. And, and we may, you know, uh, and cattle tend to actually like to eat a, a more varied diet than just being force fed a lot of corn um, that they kind of appreciate. Uh, so, you know, some alfalfa here and there, some rye, you know, so the, it, it does create some some differences in the system. But um, but we think they all create both nutritional benefit for all of us. It creates land benefit. Um, it doesn't actually lead to a net reduction in food production. Um, it just might mean that we're not producing a whole massive corn every single year, or we're still going to produce lots of corn <laughs> into the future. I don't want to, uh, you, you know, get the corn lobby on my back here, but uh, we're, we're going to be fine. But, you know, and a lot of our food right now is also going to energy production. If you look at ethanol um, production, I mean, we could make different decisions about how we're allocating uh, our scarce land um, and do it in, in a way that both um, maintains food security um, and, and allows us to, to, um, to meet these uh, environmental goals. Um, yeah. I think the other big question that kind of looms in all this is what are we using the food for? Are we eating it ourselves as human beings or are we uh, feeding it really efficiently to livestock? <laughs> so uh, if you look at the pounds of, uh, of produce required uh, to feed a cow to create milk and to give us a pound of meat, I think it's like a 30, 40 times ratio, you know? And so if you're, if you're producing more edible food that you know, if you're just producing wheat that we put into our bread, um, that's going to be a much more efficient use of that land um, than than just handing it over to to uh, um, and and a lot of agriculture is is feeding that kind of livestock process, um, and we could do it a little bit more directly too, where we might have uh, more integration of livestock on our croplands, where they're very happy to graze on crop stubbles and cover crops, and uh, you know have that more diverse diet give us some of the things we need like manure um, and allow us to, to produce less corn to, to feed them. So th there are, there are creative ways um, that for generations, millennia, we've uh, been able to produce a lot of uh, diverse food streams from the land. Um, uh, and, and it's only a very modern phenomenon that we've had this kind of monoculture system where all of our metrics are around how much, how much yield can you eke out in this one year for this particular crop? Um, it better be 250 bushels an acre, you know? Um, so, um, you know, and, and even by those metrics, regenerative agriculture does pretty well, you know, in the first few years of transition, um, you might see a little bit of drag as your, uh, as your land is sort of weaning off of chemicals and in rehab. Um, there, there, there can be a little bit of a transition. We've thought of a lot of um, uh, support systems that we can put in place for producers during those lean years. Um, but once you get through that three-year transition, you're seeing pretty good yield parity um, across the board. Um, you know, it may be a slight discount, but again, with these extra benefits of, of other kinds of crops and, and other Yeah, and I think one thing you pointed out there that we all, I think, have a, we all think about maybe subconsciously is what I heard and what I'm relating to the idea of loss aversion. Mm -hmm. When really any type of financial analysts out there who, who may be listening, they may think about what is the, what is the worst case scenario? What is that going to be versus what is the best case scenario? And that's exactly what you're saying there. What is, we may rate farmland on the best yields possible, but really what matters is those, those end members of worst drought in 10 years or worst flood in 10 years, what is our food product going to be then? Because that is, those are the times when people have real struggles. When we're all doing good, we're all happy. But when we have those struggles, that is when it really matters. And, and everything you're saying here about the regenerative agriculture being a buffer and, and being more resilient there. 
the same conversation we have with energy. We need resilient, reliable energy. And it sounds like that's what that's what you're building with this system is a resilient agriculture system. Yeah, we're not maxing out our capacity factor at the boom times. I don't know if I, I've been out of the energy zone for a long time now. But, um, you know, yeah, you, you, you are looking at some of these other ancillary services <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and still able to, to give everyone the, the food that they need to nourish their communities. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the key. Now, I do have one question. You may not have an answer for it. That's okay. Okay. When we talk about something like beef, doing free range grazing versus the corn, is there any type of number on how much food or any way to compare how much, say, you're giving them 40 bushels of corn versus their their free ranging and the equivalent is only 20 bushels? Is there any way to compare those? So, I mean, the, the way that we it, in the industry look at a, a cow's diet is in terms of dry matter intake, um, and that's a way of kind of standardizing across them. And you're, you're probably not going to want to reduce the overall dry matter intake that they're that they're taking in. Um, uh, it, it's just about changing the composition of their diet, you know. And if you look at a, a dairy farm, they get pretty creative about um, where their feed is coming from. And it's, it's not always – uh, just corn silage. I mean that they're they're looking. You know, in places like California, um, they have uh, there's a lot of f- human food waste um, that you know could get landfilled or could get fed to dairy cows. And so, in some places, they found ways to just hey, like if we've got some leftover produce here, we can add it to the diet and figure out how to balance it out. Um, you know, get cows are um, you know pretty resilient eaters, um, but you know if they stop eating and they're not uh, pleased with what you're putting in front of them, uh, that also is is a problem. But the thing they often like eating the most is, is and, and um, you know, th- there are a lot of life cycle assessments that have been out there that show, uh, hey, you might see a slight increase in enteric fermentation in their belching on, on grass. Um, but if you are on marginal lands and you're not um, in, uh, accounting for um, the, the, the greenhouse gas emissions of purpose um feed, you know, that is uh, cultivated on a farm and all the fertilizer and all the inputs that go into that uh, corn, if you're sort of comparing that to kind of free food, um, that also starts to even out the equation. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at the fertilization benefits that happen on the farm um, from having uh, grazing cattle deposit their manure and share that with the land, um, that that's another benefit. And so, um, you know, all of these things are kind of context specific. And we, we do a ton of modeling on the side to figure out on the margins, like what's what's going to work better? What's a better practice? Um, there also are a ton of innovations coming out around ad- addressing enteric fermentation specifically um, with different feed additives and, and, and ways of um, really sort of a- adjusting the way that cows adjust, uh, digest their food um, and, and reducing that methane component with the firm uh, ruminate um, at a solution that they, they say, at least in the lab, can reduce emissions 99%. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a lot lower than that in the in the field, but it could be, you know, 50, 60% um, uh, methane reductions from that process, um, which, would, which would make a big difference. So, um, you know, all of these are, can be somewhat complicated decisions to make about uh, what are what are your decarbonization strategies. Um, but, uh you know, we, we think livestock need to be a bigger part of the conversation. We spend a lot of time in these markets uh, getting excited about beautiful fields of wheat and the sequestration that they're doing. But if we're not addressing some of the livestock uh, emissions and, and some and some of the fertilizer emissions, um, we're, we're not going to make a, a ton of progress. Um, but uh, we, we think having some of these integrated grazing opportunities, um, even for some portion of the cow's life, um, that that makes a, a, a big difference on um, both farmer economics and, and the type of uh, investment they have to make in the feed and also the environmental performance of their, of their operation. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So we, we've kind of talked through a lot of this and I, I think everybody can see the value and understand kind of what we're talking about. One thing that that you said earlier that I want to I want to maybe get into the weeds a little bit on is how you actually start that regenerative agriculture process and more importantly how do you start to to solve that big question 
because one thing you pointed out, it's it's not a simple A B test. You may do that for okay till versus no till or synthetic versus synthetic fertilizer versus cow manure, and you could do that one step. You spend one season on that, and and that is one part of the larger equation. So when you think about the whole picture, how do you put in all of these different parameters? How do you start trying to see what does work, what doesn't work? How can you produce greater yields, more resilient yields? And how do you do this quickly? Because I would think a typical farmer, like I'm a bit of a nerd in like I I do follow farming and regenerative agriculture. So people like Joe Salatin, like he's been doing it for 30, 40 years. Your typical farmer has decades of experience. So how does somebody who wants to switch now, who may have, have never experienced this, how do they get those good results after three, four or five seasons? Right. Well, something that we believe is really important is to give a farmer a, a, um, a ROI positive experience in year one. <laughs> we, we want to um, really front load those benefits and tee up some of the stuff that we know works. Um, you know, and, and, you know, before we get deep into like the agronomic decisions that you might make, um, the, the first thing that we often do is get our arms around a farmer's data. Um, and it, you know, more than two thirds of farmers don't have digital records to, um, you know, base their decision, make, make an evidence-based decision. And we use a lot of tools in terms of remote sensing and some survey tools and, um, you know, integrate the kind of data that we need to get it really well organized. And, and the benefit of that is both a farmer can kind of look back and, and get their arms around their data, but also that data is organized in a way that can plug in to the various value opportunities that we can have farmers. So we can figure out what they're eligible for, including for things, you know, free resources like, um, you know, equip dollars or um, uh, some of the conservation supports that the federal government provides. Um, those can pay for some of your cover crop seeds. Um, they can, uh, you know, help you cover some of those transition costs that um, even if that activity is ROI positive um, in the long term, uh, if you're shelling out a lot of cash for that and not for something else, you might feel a little bit exposed as a farmer. And so we're really sensitive to both cash flow um, as, as well as those kind of profits. Um, so so our, our system is designed to really simplify that, that process for them, figure out what they're eligible for, to model the economic benefits alongside those environmental benefits. Um, we kind of start with three categories of interventions, um, integrating a cover crop, reducing your tillage, um, and reducing your fertilizer applications. And, and you can reduce those fertilizer applications by a certain percentage based on the nitrogen fixing benefits of that cover crop that you might be uh, planting. And so we usually look at something leguminous uh, or, uh, you know, a, a rye crop, something that fixes nitrogen and helps displace some of that fertilizer cost um, so that in year one, they're, they're getting some benefit from that. And again, a cover crop is during the winter, during kind of the dormant period of your farm. Um, it's, it's not a trade off of like, hey, you, you can't plant a cash crop. You have to uh, plant this other auxiliary thing. It is looking um, at, at something that's just additive in terms of. Uh, of, of new soil health benefits, um, and sometimes you could even harvest that that uh, rye crop at the um, in, in the spring before you plant your next crop. You're going to have to terminate that crop in some way to get the next one in. Um, and we've organized deals where you sell it to a, a local dairy, and you get a, a little bit of income off of that. Um, so it, we're trying to stitch together a process that. Um, is sensitive to the risk a farmer takes, um, is, is putting value on the table um, for them in, in the first year. Um, and, and that gets them in this glide path of, of adding these other pieces. So the next summer it might be, hey, you know, I can, I can add that cover crop, but I can also graze some cattle on there. Uh, maybe my, my, my neighbor will pay me for that privilege, or maybe I'll even take the risk and buy some cattle and, and know that um, by, by putting them on my fields for a little bit longer, they can be healthier and uh, fetch a higher price at market. The, the farmers have, are so creative. And, and you know, getting back to your really initial point of how do you create these kind of diverse revenue streams um, that, that create a, a more viable operation? Um, 
you know, it, it, the paradigm used to be you look at mineral rights. Um, uh, now you look at some wind energy rights um, potentially on your farm or soil so, uh, solar on your farm. For us, it's like let, let's look at all of the potential opportunities to monetize a, a new asset on your farm. Um, it, but but through the conservation lens, you know, through the lens of what's also going to to really improve the value of this asset over time and, and make sure viable food producing uh, parcel for, for a long time. Yeah. I think that that makes sense. Ultimately you have data so that you can start analyzing and looking for opportunities to either reduce cost or increase revenue and, and having that be that collaborative relationship with the farmer. So that way they, they can work in what they feel comfortable with and what they some ideas that they have for their land since they've been on it for so long. And we try not to be prescriptive at all of like, you need to do this, that, and the, like farmers know their land best. Um, what we know are these other markets, whether you want to participate in a carbon market or there might be a brand in your area that's, that sources grain from uh, your geography and they have a greenhouse gas goal and we could be working with them to help meet that through interventions on the farm. Sometimes you can get financing from those firms that, that are putting dollars on the table to, to transform their supply chain. So we're, we're good about uh, organizing the data and figuring out where it's valuable and, um, and, and understanding the, the kind of scenarios of different practices that might work. But like it is up to a farmer to decide what's the right fit for my farm. And, and they have their own slate of trusted advisors, of, of crop advisors, and that, that, that can help them make the kind of dis- the agronomic decisions specifically on the ground. We, we, we don't want to be in that position. Um, we we want to provide that kind of market knowledge. And, and yeah. Very cool. Now, before we get to the final questions, do you have any specific case studies that you really like to highlight? If somebody only has 30 seconds and you need to convince them this is the way to go. Do you have any case studies wow. where you're like, look at this. This is the cool stuff. This is how awesome regen agriculture can be. I mean, um, I'll highlight one of our partners who we're really excited about. Uh, there's a firm called SLM. They're uh, an investment firm. Um, and they buy land um, and have it uh, managed sustainably and, and, and see the, the benefit of um, uh, increased land values from owning that land and having it operated well. Um, but they they have a really interesting model where they locate really talented growers in an area that that are committed to regenerative practices um, and figure out how to um, basically take their operations and expand them. You know, to say, hey, it, it might be a lot for you to take on the debt or uh, the risk of buying a new property, but let's give you really beneficial leasing terms. Um, we'll work together to figure out, hey, what kind of op- upside might be on this property through an organic certification or through carbon markets or things like that. Um, and, you know, they, they help really advance uh, th- these operations and, and expand uh, throughout the Midwest. And they're pretty, me- I mean, I think a $450 million land fund. Um, so they're, they're doing it at a, at a reasonable scale. Um, and what we do is provide the kind of baselining services and um, the, the carbon market access uh, opportunities uh, for their farmers. Um, but they found a way to really de-risk it for the operator to agree on this plan of transition. Um, uh, and it creates no concerns of like additionality that somehow this land's been operated this, this way for a long time. They're like, we are, we are going to buy it with um, the assumption that it's degraded now and it's going to be uh, uh, restored in the future. And uh, so we really love the partnership with them. And I think they have some uh, periodic impact reports that they do that talk through this, this process. So um, we're really pleased to get the chance to work with SLM across their portfolio. That That's cool. I see that. That's really exciting to hear the value that they see in that and the value that they they're essentially building up a business model on expanding regenerative agriculture. I think that's, that's really cool. So with that, I want to transition into the final questions. These are the questions that I ask all my guests. That first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Recommend the book after cooling by Eric Dean Wilson. Um, it's a little bit of a log roll cause he's a friend of mine. Um, but it's also a fabulous read, the fantastic book. Um, it's it's a book actually about um, uh, 
the history of refrigerant and Freon and air conditioning, um, which is something we totally take for granted, but is kind of an invented reality. <laughs> um, we, we never used to condition our spaces. We used to open the windows, you know, um, and looking at both the environmental impact of that um, and, and the kind of response um, to that uh, environmental impact. And um, my, my previous work was in, in finding some of these old uh, CFC refrigerants and destroying them. Um, but I got to interact with a whole lot of people, um, uh, you know, auto mechanics and random technicians and things like that, that had this refrigerant. And so uh, Eric and I uh, spent a lot of time talking about that business that we, that I was building and um, just the kind of cultural um, opportunities in, in, uh, in, in making this kind of change, both a change of thinking about different ways of conditioning our spaces, um, but also the, the kind of repair involved in, in taking out um, these refrigerants connecting with with parts of the the um, the U.S. that really hadn't been engaged in climate action before, and in the kind of authentic exchange that happened um, in, in the process of transacting around these refrigerants. Uh, it's a really interesting read, and, and Eric is a, is a beautiful writer, um, and, and and takes a real equity lens into this, which is a big part of um, you know what, why I'm motivated to do this work. Um, that, uh, that there's an opportunity if, if you're just solving climate change and not addressing some of the fundamental equity issues, um, we're failing. We're, we're not doing it right. Um, so uh, Eric's a really powerful voice uh, in, in communicating that kind of narrative. Yeah, I, I like that. I will have to pick that up and and read it. Now, the next question I see we we prepped this a long time ago because this is still the when will we be net zero so recently i've changed this question to okay. how do we get to net zero right so how do we do it how do we get there uh deep breaths for first of all <laughs> um uh, all with just like direct air capture and no i'm just kidding um uh <laughs> No, no uh, shade thrown to all the great carbon removal stuff that's out there. Um, I, I am not intimidated in the same way by getting to, to net zero. I'm, I'm certainly um, scared about our future if we don't if we don't move faster. Um, but I think the the exciting thing is, and the thing that regenerative agriculture I think reminds me about is that we actually have all the tools and technologies that we. Need. Um, I think some of the paralysis comes from. Feeling like, oh, maybe in a couple of years we'll get cold fusion, you know, or or direct air capture or, you know, some backflip that we can do that we can invest, you know, whatever, however many R&D dollars into um, to bring forward. And, and then we don't have to make any of these fundamental changes. And I think instead, I think we should be less intimidated by some of the changes that we have to make, um, that they're things that we've done before and that um, we're really capable of change. Um, and, and you know, in, in embracing, and I think your, your point about loss aversion is key, that like, that these are not losses, that these are real net gains, you know, um, that, that having a deeper relationship with our farms um, means that we actually appreciate what we eat in a different way, you know, and, um, you know, compost, composting our food scraps to be able to um, contribute them back to those farms uh, is an amazing way to both reduce emissions and uh, to, to just have a deeper relationship with our um, th These are the small individual tasks. Obviously, this has to happen on a more institutional scale. But, um, you know, we are losing more money by operating inexpensive fossil fuel plants um, than we would by just shutting them down and putting something else new on the grid. You know, um, I, I love the systems of you know, securitizing some of those facilities and figuring out um, how to get out of some of those bad contracts and putting clean stuff on the grid and trusting that we have the kind of resilience and technology set up uh, to be able to get there. Um, so, I, you know, I, I hate to bring like a hearts and minds approach. I, I, don't, I don't think that's that's it. And we need like really good political lobbying uh, because this is a this is a fight. And even if I don't believe and we don't believe that it is a zero sum game, um, I think there are folks that, that feel a tremendous amount to lose um, from this regenerative or, or um, uh, renewable transition from a decarbonized economy. Um, so I, I think we need to be prepared 
to to fight. Um, but we also have to show up um, and have to show up not just in communities we're comfortable in, um, but you know, a, a lot of farmers. If I just assumed that no farmer would be open to these ideas, um, we'd be missing a huge opportunity. And and just by showing up and being in conversation and really valuing the expertise of farmers and figuring out. Um, the ways that this operationally works, um, we've been able to, to make some fantastic partnerships and make some progress. And so I think it's about showing up. It's about not, not being intimidated um, and not just waiting for the next, uh, you know, uh, moonshot to happen that, that we've already done all, all the hard work. Now it's just about integrating the, the, the great ideas that are already out there. Yeah. That's a, a good perspective. I, I, Completely agree. I think we can do it today if we want. It, I I would push back a little bit saying mm. part of the hard work is going to be accepting and implementing and 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 doing it. Simply doing it. It it it's it is straightforward. We know the path. The hard part is actually doing it. So we've done a lot of a lot of hard work already in developing those technologies and now actually doing it is like a, it's the second part of the hard. Yeah. And like, I don't want to make it seem like, uh, I'm Pollyannish about building a business and trying to implement at scale. And it, it's a lot. Um, uh, I, I mean more in the kind of political sense that we should yeah. not in all of our roles as, um, you know, members of, Democracy and civil society. Um, I, I think sometimes we uh, discount our ambition because we don't actually trust that that there's going to be a solution at the other end, or that you know, like it is always easier to have ambition and then adjust when it doesn't work out than to just discount from the beginning and say, well, we're just going to have to do it this way. You know, um, I mean, not to take it in a in a super political direction or a sort of cultural direction, but I, I remember. Um, in high school, um, the, the you know gay marriage was very far away from um, feeling like a, a political possibility, and I remember constructing these backflip ar- arguments of like, well, maybe like just civil unions would would be a way to do things, and and you know that th- maybe that's what we would accept, you know, with our society, and um, you know, sort of was already discounting and, and arguing for a kind of more moderated response, and. Within a decade, you know, like activists actually pushed and we realized that like, um, you know, we have, we have, uh, queer family members and members of our workforce and, um, that like, we don't, we don't lose anything by it. It's not a, a novel, uh, new technology to allow people to, to commit to their partners, you know, that like we can actually do it, you know? And, and I, I think. I, I, that was an eye-opening moment for for me in, in terms of just our expectations of civil society. That I think inertia um, really benefits from our pessimism, um, and I I, I want to project that like this is all really possible, and it, you know it, it's going to take work, but uh, we have the technology. Um, we <laughs> we we just can't get too bogged down by. Um, you know, the political interests or the, uh, the enormity of the task that like we can, we can really do this. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I completely agree. So now the last question, you actually get to ask me a question. Yeah. I'm curious. So um, as a podcast host of uh, a show that, that focuses a lot on um, energy solutions and, um, you know, some of the things in climate action that feel like a um, switch flip in some ways, you know, that you switch from this technology to this technology and uh, it's it, the grid is better for it. We, we understand that. I know there's nuance of like time of use and, you know, but like it feels like you're turning off something that emits and turning on something that doesn't. Um, and nature-based climate solutions um, are just a whole other level of complexity. Um of uh, biological systems that that don't always behave the way we expect them to, and you know the, the best of intentions can get burned down in a forest fire. You know, um, I, I'm just curious how you value those nature based solutions that are uh, maybe less, um, uh, I wouldn't say secure, but less like known in terms of their impact, um, but 
you know, still uh, an opportunity and, um, you know, it's still a meaningful source of, of potential reductions in decarbonization. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's a new one. I've never been asked that. But, of course, I have an opinion and I <laughs> talk to everybody about everything. So I... Nature based solutions are are really one of the primary solutions right now in terms of of extracting carbon from the system as it is. The and so I think there is a very important place for nature based solutions. And I think that they understanding the natural environment and the I would say the annual carbon cycle, the annual natural carbon cycle, and how we can interact with that is very, very important. And that's why things like regenerative agriculture are so interesting to me, because that is something that we can look at. We are we are actively growing food. We are actively partaking in the natural system. How can we do that in a less carbon intensive way or a less a less impactful way, essentially. And so, and when you look at it from the human perspective of now, we're saying, okay, we're changing the way we operate in the present day, which is going to reduce our carbon footprint. And that is a way to to, to flip it into a human-centric viewpoint, which is ultimately a, a that's what we're calling a nature-based solution, is we're making a way to decarbonize our, our way of life. So I, I, from that regard, I think it is very important to understand the natural system and how we interact with it and how we can reduce our impact on it. I, I think the, there's two caveats with all of that. The idea of planting big, large swaths of trees, I think they, they are, as you point out, there is a a risk there, especially when we're doing that in locations like California that right now, because of, because of the climate, because of where we are in, in, in time, they are, they are a risky investment and they are not resilient, which makes it questionable on how, how good of a solution they are. Because if they're going to get burned up in five years, are they a solution at all? Whereas something like reforesting the Amazon, that would be that I think is great, provided that we are not putting in big, large monocultures that that are clearly like a stamp of okay, humans have been here. What what we need to be doing is is more restoration of the natural environment, and I and and that is that is a a I will. Freely admit that is an ignorant viewpoint of mine in that I don't know how we are going about restoring the Amazon or re reforesting the Amazon. So I may be way off. Maybe we are doing it in a diverse way, in a restorative way, as opposed to a replanting way. But I think that is what really matters. And so that's that's one caveat. The second one is that there's there's a lot of carbon in the atmosphere. If we want to get to less than 300 ppm or less than 250 or 275 ppm, we do have to find a way to pull that out. So something like direct air capture is is it's necessary because the annual cycle we may stop ad- emitting and if we get to net zero and we're not emitting, that's great, but we're at I, I haven't looked in a while, but I what is it, 450, 475, somewhere around there. So we could either stay there and through geologic time reduce it back down to what is what is the natural level, or we have to actively pull some out. So that is something that nature-based solutions, I haven't seen any that Okay, we're recording again. So don't know what happened to my computer. It's okay direct air capture because we we have more CO2 in the atmosphere than what we are projecting we want to be at. So I think that if we do want to physically lower the CO2 in the atmosphere, then 
I I think we do need to reduce carbon from that standpoint. It although now I'm now I'm second question second guessing myself, and maybe this is something that you get to work on, thinking through because agriculture and plants always do better with more CO2, perhaps they are going to be fixing some of that additional CO2 into the ground. So maybe we don't need direct air capture. Maybe we need the plants will be able to do it, provided that we are actually fixing that CO2 in the ground. Yeah. I, I mean, that that's the, you know, the sort of complicated process is really comes down to photosynthesis that like yeah. a, a plant is, um, uh, you know, a, a able to, to breathe in some CO2 to uh, take in some sunlight and some water, turn it into like the plant biomass, which is a little impermanent because we harvest it, um, but also some sugars that it gets to trade underground with um, all kinds of bacteria. And and some of that stays in there and some of that like uh, dense brown, blackish uh, soil, um, it ends up being carbon-based, you know? Um, yeah. and, and certainly trees and their biomass, you know, can, can be um, uh, carbon rich. Uh, so, you know, I think we have this interesting uh, challenge where, and this goes back to some of my my point about, um, uh, you know, wanting to invest in the new shiny object, you know, and that there's, yeah. um, if we said that, hey, we have a solar powered uh, carbon sucking technology that can produce all of the world's food um, and is like microbial rich and, uh, you know, and we want to raise some venture capital for it. Uh, and, and it's it's ready. It's been tested at a global scale. Uh, you know, it, it could raise hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in venture capital, but it already exists and it's just soil. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, I think that's some of the challenge. But there there really are these um, these complementary issues of like measuring that change and valuing it alongside things that are more certain. Um, and it, it does feel nice to have a. a, a permanent source of storage in something that's been mineralized or that's been, you know, directly captured and, um, you know, put into our soda water. Uh, my, my wife once said that she, she thought that, uh, the soda stream, uh, that we had just pulled the CO2 out of the atmosphere. And I was like, no, there's a tank there and it would be really nice. It would be such a great technology if it just did that. But, uh, unfortunately we, yeah. we don't have the technology yet there, but, um, yeah, it, it's, um, uh, we need everything, you know, I, I mean, I, I, and, and I don't, again, like to operate from a place of this, not that, um, it's, you know, like we, we kind of need everything to come forward. We also still need to produce food and also need to protect our, our, you know, um, wild areas, uh, and, and figure out how to do that in a way that, um, you know, is, is embraces indigenous yeah. folks that often manage those lands and, um, allows them to be incredible land stewards as they are. Um, so, you know, all, all of these solutions need, um, need to be paired together. Um, but, um, you know, I think the cha the challenge that we find is how do they, how do these markets talk to each other? You know, if yeah. someone is buying an offset from a coal plant, you know, that feels a little bit weird that the coal plant keeps operating and, you know, it doesn't always happen quite like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's where these kind of these things get squishy and and, yeah. and why we frankly are, are spending more time in insets in trying to work within a corporate value chain and say, um, you know, we, we're, we're working with Unilever right now who's doing great work um, mm -hmm. and they want to make a pretty significant dent in their dairy supply chain and we're helping to reduce those emissions. And it's not trading those emissions uh, to Microsoft um, for, you know, their data centers it is saying like this product that we're making, we want it to be decarbonized. Um, and we think that there's some elegance in, in being able to kind of segment these different parts. And so that the coal plants have to reduce their emissions, uh, the energy sector gets to decarbonize and doesn't just get a, a cheap fix from the offset world. Um, the food systems also have to decarbonize. Um, and then maybe there's a different kind of lever for, um, conserved areas. Um, uh, you know, that, that's maybe a complicated one because some of these wild areas aren't in our supply chains anywhere, or maybe they, they are for bad reasons. Um, <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's a, a, a challenging um, 
uh, sort of cross-cutting issue, but I, I do think that uh, we have to value these solutions. And that that's a really good point there, that if we do it in what, like, separated or 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 segmented by sector, then you can be finding the solution that best works for decarbonizing your your subset. Because I, I would agree, something like direct air capture, I don't see how that is going to make sense for the agriculture industry. But if you're talking about some type of some type of um, power system or some type of large user of energy like a data center, now you start looking at it and saying, okay, how would something like direct air capture fit into this very industrialized section of society? And there it it might make sense. And there might be ways that they can have this symbiotic relationship to get those same benefits, which may never, never fit into something like agriculture or or fisheries or or any of the food products. But you never know. So yeah, very cool. Sam, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Uh, no, I, I, I guess just another piece of gratitude and certainly happy Thanksgiving, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to have um, a conversation across these silos, you know, and, and it's, it means fun for me because I used to be in the energy world and used to develop wind energy projects. Um and appreciate that these sectors are all connected. And I, I appreciate you convening a conversation across these different decarbonization opportunities and recognizing that we need these integrated solutions across the economy. Well, thank you for those kind words. And thank you again for joining me. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts through OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting the website. The link is in the show notes. If you're into stickers, I have a way for you to get some from us. Go to the go to my show notes, find that one-question survey link, click it, fill it out, and then we will send you some stickers. Finally, my three-year-old is going to be thrilled. This is great. Yeah, great, awesome. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email address is joe.batir at oggn.com. If you, don't, if you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oggn.com.